and welcome to The Retiring Room. I'm Katie. And I'm Charlotte. And we are your co-hosts back for our first full episode. For our first one, we are going to look at The Witches. So, we have a quick disclaimer right at the top. We are going to look at all three books at once. So if you haven't gone and read them all, please go and read them all before you listen to this. Or don't complain to us about spoilers. Because we will have zero sympathy with you. We'll also be looking and using other books to complement this. Most notably, The Definitive Guide to His Dark Materials by Laurie Frost and several mythology books. Um, anything we reference, we will use, we'll reference back in show notes. And shall we just launch right into it? I think we should. All right. So... First thing we're going to do is we're going to do a quick overview of the witches and how they appear throughout the series. So, where do they first appear, Charlotte? Go for it. The first place they appear is in Lyra's world, but they also appear in Will's world, Chittagatse, the Mulefa, Azrael's Republic. They are, they're everywhere. Though we only ever meet witches who come from Lyra's world, we should also say. Yes, that's true. That's true. So they, they travel all over the place, but these specific kinds of witches are specific to Lyra's world, mm-hmm. wherever they may travel to after that. Yes, exactly. And certainly all come really from what in our world and in their world really would be Scandinavia and Finland area, really. Yeah. They're very, they're very normal. So we'll start with a brief physical description because they all have the same real physical appearance, really. Um, they're all female. They can live for hundreds of years, some of them more than a thousand they all look like vibrant, sensual, fit young women, no matter how old they actually are. And they are incredibly wise with that. They all dress in strips of black silk. Some of them wear things on their heads as well, similar to crowns in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll be going into that later. Absolutely. They can feel the cold, but they know it won't harm them in the way it will normal humans. And so that's why they wear strips of black silk, so that they prefer not to cut themselves off from the bright tingle of the stars and the silky feeling of the moonlight on their bare limbs. That is one of the most amazing images, I think. Um, I, I love the idea that they are so in tune with nature that they can they can feel these things. Absolutely. And it's such a big part of who they are. It's just wonderful. So we first really hear about the witches in proxy, I suppose. Uh, we hear about them through other characters. We don't meet them at first. Philip Pullman likes to build the tension with them. Yeah, absolutely. The first mentions of them are from other people. So the first time they're mentioned by Father Corum in Northern Lights. They're discussed by Dr. Lansalius. So we meet their consul, but not them themselves. We get really, really close to meeting a witch when Kaiser comes and visits them on the ship in Trollicent. Um, We see them from the distance in the sky on the way to the fishing hut when Lyra and Yorick stop. The actual first time we meet them is at the liberation of Balvanga. And the first time we see a group of witches all together in sort of a non-threatening situation is then at the witch council in the Subtle Ninth. Yes, in chapter two, after Serafina Pekala has left the ship and the torture scene and has travelled around for a bit. And then she finally comes back to talk to her sisters about what they're going to do about this this war that they suddenly find themselves in. Yes, and there's several witch clans represented there as well. Yeah, which is, I think it's awesome. I, I find that Philip Pullman's breadth of description when it comes to 
peoples like this, you know, you have different clans who live in different areas and do different things and have different priorities. I think the most interesting thing about the witches is the sheer variety of what happens within one people, within one species. Um, I think they may well be one of the most varied, non-strictly human groups that we see throughout the whole trilogy, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And their personalities as individuals are really shine out as well. You've got characters like Utica Minan and Serafina Pekala, who are both in the same clan. And yet they both have their own distinct priorities within the clan as well that are respected. Yeah. So then we have the Witch Council and they decide to seek out Lyra and offer her whatever help they can, essentially, while also helping Lee Scoresby and the other people. And then they enter the world of Chittagatse and they have encounters with spectres and with people there and with angels. And then they also find Will and Lyra and they kind of escort them up to a point. And then there's a very devastating scene at the end of The Subtle Knife. And that's kind of the last time we really see the witches together. And it's it's the last time we see them in person and at the centre of anything. The rest of the time they're talked about quite peripherally. They're, you know, they're, they're, there's a witch here and a witch there, but apart from Serafina Pekala, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of hugely individual witch activity that sort of shows the level of personality that we've seen from all of them so far. And even Serafina isn't really that present in the last book until really the end. When she has some really, really big stuff to do. But again, we just haven't seen her. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of, that, that's the end of their time, really. Um, but so, that, so that's, roughly, that's roughly where they're up here. We're going to dive deeper into some of those moments. And we're also going to talk a little bit about witch culture as well. So let's dive into it. Why do we care about the witches? What have they ever done for us? What have they done that's interesting? So I think there's there's a few different things for me. The first thing is the prophecy. Um, and despite the fact that the witches themselves don't spend a great proportion of their on-screen time, as it were, talking about it, it's a really huge part of their context and why they are mentioned and what people are talking about when they talk about witches. Like you look at the, the amber spyglass and so many times the witches are mentioned, it's only through the lens of the prophecy. Um, They've kind of been ignored apart from that. Exactly. Um, I think another thing is that they are, they are our first real confirmed interworld awareness and contact. Um, you know, you've got Lord Azrael spouting off right at the beginning about how there probably are other worlds, but he's not 100% certain. The Barnard Stokes conjecture as well, that's mentioned a few times. Yes, absolutely. But it's 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 a heresy and it's a theory rather than something that we've had. Yeah, confirmed. meanwhile the witches are just going about going, yeah, we knew about this for hundreds of years. We hear about them in the Northern Lights. Absolutely. So we first hear about that. It's first confirmed by Kaiser when he's talking to Lyra in Trollicent. But you have the various travels of witches later on between worlds and having contact with beings from other worlds um, that really definitely cements that this other world thing is something that people have known about for ages. Not since, not only since Asriel ripped a massive great hole in the sky 
and walked through to a beautiful seaside city, it's, you know, this is something that witches have known about for hundreds, thousands of years. And one thing that strikes me about that is there seems to be a lot of knowledge that the witches have, but they don't share it with people. Yeah. They maybe share it among other witches. They don't talk to, to the human beings about it. They don't really consider themselves human. Um, and it also makes me wonder what, what knowledge, what other knowledge they have that they don't share as well. Yeah. But you're certainly right. The prophecy, they don't talk about really themselves. They know about it, but it's not really important to them. Yeah. It's important to other people, which is why the witches are important to other people. But in terms of their priorities, it doesn't form really the central point of a great deal, I don't think. So to quote from the definitive guide quickly, mm -hmm. um, witches believe that we are all subject to the fate, Serafina says, but we must all act as if we are not or die of despair. Ah, okay. Yeah, while they do believe in prophecy and they do believe that fates matter, they do not see it as the guiding force in the world. Whereas people like the Magisterium, the, the, the prophecy is the only thing that matters to them at certain points in the story. Absolutely. I think the last thing that's really interesting and fascinating about the witches, um, apart from them being badass flying women, of which the world needs far more, I think the fact that they are not inherently moralised there are witches on all sides of the conflict. The church will work with them happily. So will others. And actually, if you look at quite a lot of witch representation, witches are not a good thing. They're not good people to be around, which I, I appreciate is a massive part of patriarchal ideas about women and about subduing women, particularly women who know more than they should. But I think moving away from that trope, particularly with relation to the church, I think that's a really interesting and very different portrayal of witches to what we normally see. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when we first meet them, because we meet them through Lyra and she meets them sort of in connection with the with Egyptians, she she does see them as kind of good in themselves. Yeah. But later on, we do see and she sees as well that witches do everything and they are not coded as good or bad. They they do what they want to and they support what they believe at any, any moment. Yeah, and this is this is a point that's raised a few times. For example, when Lyra and Yorick see the witches flying, they don't actually know if they're going to help them or to help somebody else. They don't know at all. There's, there's a lot of moral ambiguity about generally yeah Yurik, i think makes the point that he hopes that they are going to their aid if not then i believe that they should be they should all be afraid yeah and that's when lyra kind of has her moment like oh there are not good witches there's no good or bad really with them yeah i enjoy the complexity that pullman gives us they are as fickle as human beings and in that respect they're quite close to being human although as we'll find out they are quite different in an awful lot of ways so our next big section is going to be about the background, any real world or mythological inspirations for witches, any trivia about them that Philip Pullman offers to sort of flesh them out beyond just their their in-story existence. Because certainly in Western mythology, there is no lacking for witches. But they're usually hags. Yes, they are usually old, ugly women. <laughs> exactly. Um, which these witches very, very much are not. And I think... Philip Pullman has studiously made them not old hags. No, they are almost universally regarded as beautiful, but their beauty is not a shallow beauty. It's wisdom as well. Um, 
it's wonderful that as well. Yeah, I love it. So I, I we've both spent some time trying to look through our various folklore knowledge to find which like figures who look more like Philip Pullman's witches than the ones that we all know about. Um, I looked through Finnish folklore and the only witch I really know of is Lohi, um, the gap-toothed hag of the Norse, which is very clearly not <laughs> what I'm talking about. Um, but what I did find was a creature called a lauma, um, the plural is the laumis, um, in Latvian and Lithuanian folklore. Um, I may have massacred the pronunciation there and I'm very, very sorry to any Latvian and Lithuanian speakers I may have offended here. Please do feel free to correct me. But yeah, so the Lau- the Laumes were the closest thing I could find to the description we are given of witches. But it's mostly an appearance thing. They're blonde, they're slim, they're dressed in scraps of silk. So we've got a fairly strong appearance-based likeness for them. Then you go into what Laumes are and they are... They're the fairies who steal children and they're responsible for changelings and stuff like that, which is immediately quite a hard swerve of the witches that we've actually got. There are some strong Finno-Ugric links in terms of the mythology. Um, Yambe Aka in particular is, she is a real person in Finno-Ugric folklore that we're going to talk about a little bit later. But other than that, they seem quite unique and not very grounded in stuff that we would find in our real world but you you found some other folkloric points that are of interest and could provide a point of comparison so i had a look through all of my folk books and i found one reference in manx mythology i won't try and pronounce this name because my manx is terrible we'll link it and you can work out how you might pronounce it this witch specifically well she's sort of to do with weather which is something that they do at the Witch Council. They bring up a good wind for Lee Scoresby to send him on his way to find Stanislas Grumman, isn't it? Yes. So they go to this witch and they offer her a tribute to this fisherman, asking that she'll give them fair winds. But then there's a little moment where they disrespect her and they threaten to throw her in the sea. And then they all head out to sea anyway. And um, they have a big storm and all but seven of them die. The seven single men, they are saved by... I believe the king of the mermen, because he likes them. But then the witch, she is said to have raised the storm by her spells, and so they kill her, which is quite bad. There's no real mention of her looks specifically. Okay. Um, which is quite nice in itself. Hmm. But the, the weather-working thing is the real point of comparison there. I should add that these aren't things that we've heard confirmed by Philip Pullman or anybody with him. These These are links that may or may not be completely spurious but we we are finding them interesting because they bear so much resemblance um but please don't go writing to philip pullman and saying how it's really cool how he blatantly based it on manx mythology or latvian mythology because we don't have any evidence he did that absolutely not but there's no problem drawing our own kind of fun conclusions i suppose absolutely not So in terms of further sort of real world influences um, or our world influences, I suppose, um, in the back of the 10th anniversary edition of The Subtle Knife, we have a load of notes from John Parry, quite a lot of them about the witches, including, for me, fascinatingly, a map which shows where the witch clans live and they're spread over the Baltic 
regions and up into Lapland and eastern to Siberia. And I, I love, again, this level of detail that's shown to account for the variations between witches, the fact that not all of them have the same alliances. I really, really love that. There's some really interesting geography in this as well. Tanya's clan, which is almost stretched on two sides of what appears to be a river, I suppose. Not a river, but um, like a bay. Um, yeah. It's just quite a fascinating geographical link of a community. Yeah, because he says a fair amount about his observations of witch clan territory, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, if I'm right, it says, The borders between witch clan lands are definite but irregular and they vary from season to season with the flowering of plants and the migration of animals and birds. That's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an, it's another part of this whole thing where they're really in tune with nature, and it's, it's another level on which nature dictates who they are and what they do, yeah. which I think is brilliant. It's fascinating. And I also love on his map, he's not drawn in really any country lines you sort of have to work those out yourself in a way. Um, in particular, like Seraphina Pekala's witches are straddled across probably all three of the Scandinavian countries. Oh no, Fenoscanic countries. So that'd be Norway, Sweden and Finland, it appears, for her land go over. I believe so, yeah. Mm. We will link to this map in the, in the description because it is fascinating. Absolutely. So that's kind of all we've really said about the geography, but I know you had something about um, the plants of the region you wanted to talk about as well. What was that? Yeah, so this is... Definitely very, very speculative. But as a plant nerd and slight tree nerd, I wanted to see if I could work out what cloud pine was um, because I didn't put it past Philip Pullman to have found some obscure name for an existing tree or something like that. And it turns out that we don't have anything that simple. But I don't care. I'm going to try and find it anyway. So I was trying to work out what it could be. And my best approximation ended up being Scots pine, which is very, very cool. And it's distributed in just the right areas, according to the map that John Parry gives us. It's the only pine that's native to Northern Europe. And it's also known as the Norway pine and the Riga pine. It appears in large forests in Siberia, known as shaman forests, which, bearing in mind the links between witches and shamanism and magic, I think is not irrelevant. And they're very old trees, sort of two, three hundred, four hundred years, which is comparable with which lifetimes, of course. And in Finno-Ugric folklore, they are connected to the god Ukko, who is also known as Yumala. And he is kind of a Zeus equivalent. That's a really clumsy likeness, but we'll work with it. And his wife is Akka which is a name for a female spirit. Um, but, of course, Akka will mean though a lot to those of you who know about Yambe Akka, um, who we will talk about later. So it's got all the right things. It's found in the right areas, it's native, and, of course, it being widespread, it goes in with the idea that the witches can use any branch of cloud pine to fly. It doesn't have to be anything specific. Again, I have no confirmation from Philip Pullman that this is definitely Scott's pine, and I don't even know if he would go for anything so explicit and obvious about it. But Scott's pine is a beautiful tree. It's found in all the right areas, and it's certainly got its share of folkloric meaning that I think makes it a really good candidate for what we might call cloud pine if we found a branch here. If only Mary Malone had been more of a botanist and she'd seen some cloud pine, she might have been able to help us a bit better. I know. 
So the next big section, now we've done this introduction to the witches, to their trivia, their appearances, their role in the story. We wanted to follow some kind of thematic threads about them and go into a little bit more about some of the points we were making earlier about their role and their characterization and take an even deeper, closer look at all of these things. So first of all, we're going to talk about their interactions with some of the humans in the story and how those differ. So obviously, because they have much longer lifespans, the witches have a different perspective on the relationships they have with other people. There are no male witches. They are all female. Yeah, that is made very clear. They have men who work for them, but men cannot be witches. Not in Lyra's world, anyway. No, not in Lyra's world. The Rutuscardi does mention that there are male witches in other worlds. Mm. And it's a world like Lyris. It's not specified if it is Will's world. But the implication, I think, is that it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it must be. But we don't know. Because also, the fact that they wouldn't have demons wouldn't be a surprise. Yeah. Because witches are often without their demons. That's true. In terms of their romantic relationships, then, they do take lovers. Mm -hmm. They take human men as lovers. Yeah. And we have several examples of that. So we have Serafina Pecola and Fadakorum. We have Rutuscardi and Lord Azriel. And we have the the jilted Utica Minon and Joan Parry, which, although it didn't come into a full relationship, certainly backs up this whole thing of witches pursuing and engaging in relationships with men, though not always successfully, as it turns out. But also in, in a non-trivial way, they don't do it purely for pleasure or as a one-time thing they deeply love these men yeah but marriage is impractical because if one of you is staying looking like they're 21 forever and the other is dying quite quickly mm. marriage isn't really possible no which causes quite a lot of pain for father Coram, i think especially we see yeah because he doesn't want seraphina pecola to see him as he is and I think that's a really heartbreaking moment, actually, that you don't want to see the person you loved because you know you've changed more than they will. And it, it's Serafina Pecola who raises that point, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it's one of the TV series that this is covered. Mm. We wouldn't really see like the private life. Of, he definitely always, in the, even in the book, seems more comfortable with Kaiser than he does around Serafina. That's really true. But yeah, partly that is, of course, because of their child and their history. Mm are able to have children if they have female children then they become witches uh, alongside their mothers but if they have male children they are not witches and they will have normal human lifespans which is heartbreaking i imagine for most of the witches whether they take care of the children themselves or if they stay with their fathers and don't know their mothers is not really made clear to us at any point and that feeds into some existing legends like Selkie mythology. There's a particular song, the Grey Selkie, that I know, where the Selkie is the guy and begets the child. And he comes back and takes the child with him to teach him to swim. And so I think there's there's something like that going on there. Yeah, because certainly the female children, you could imagine that, that this human male can't really live with the witch clan as an equal. But that girl will need to grow up to be a witch. And so in a way, these children never really fit in with both of their parents, which is heartbreaking. Yeah. And there's a, there's a quote in the definitive guide. I'm not 100% certain where it comes from, but it says, Over the hundreds of years of their lifetimes, the repeated loss of lovers and sons 
mean that witches' hearts are continually racked with pain. While, while the relationships and any other relationships definitely don't define the witches, they're a huge part of who they are and drive their motivation. Yeah, definitely. And actually, Serafina Pekela's clan helps Lyra partly as a result of her relationship with Coram and Ruta Skadi and Azriel's relationship has has something to do with it as well, I think, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. In the first instance, Serafina Pekela does help purely as a kind of favour back to Sparta Corum, but later on they then develop their own moral reasons for doing it once they see what's happening at Baldina. But definitely initially. Rutus Gardi is all for just heading to Lord Asriel. She seems obsessed with him. Mm. And she's like, let's break everybody and fight. Not everyone is quite as keen as Rutus Gardi. No. She cannot wait to get back to Lord Asriel. No, she can't. <laughs> that is a wonderful scene. I like it. And especially her description of it later, where it's like, nobody needs to be told what happened next because they're either too young to understand or they've been there before. And I just, I love the real kind of, earthiness of it there for a moment it's just like yeah wink nudge nudge we all know what happened yeah it's a moment slipped in there for the adults i loved it absolutely loved it (laughs) did not understand it when i was 15 and read the book for the first time not at all i was like what happened please tell us i had no clue and then i i read it again later in my 20s i was like oh oh i do like that but yeah, so for all the relationships that we have, the witches are quite set apart and they consciously have to choose to get involved. It's not really an automatic thing at all. So you see in the witch council, they go back and forth about what they should do. And is it anybody's problem other than the people like right in the middle of it? Yeah, and I think partly that's their long age, which does it as well. When you live for years, this one wee conflict, is it really worth risking that their lives exactly but then that makes their involvement even more momentous because yeah that this is clearly not just some scrap between a few people this is this is really this is this is a battle between worlds and i think part of what builds up the war to be what it is is this fact that you know you've got centuries old fighting women who don't normally get their hands dirty on human business they're there on all sides they are all picking their sides and what they want to do in this it's not just that Serafina Pekela brings her clan on board because she loves Lyra and she loves Fadakorum all the witches are getting involved all of them and all the witches they're kind of democratic to a point their their queen always gets the final say but they are all allowed to give their own opinion and it's not Serafina who forces them to do things. They're there of their own choice. I believe when they even go into the other world, it's a volunteer system at some point. Yeah. And the choices of other witches are honoured. So Yutaka Minen, who was spurned by John Parry and, you know, she's like, if I ever see him, I'm going to kill him. Serafina Pekka is like, yeah, sure. That's okay. I get it. Come with me. You're not gonna. You're not gonna meet him. Which, of course, doesn't quite work out. If anything, it's the worst thing that could have happened. But you know, the idea that she is allowed to kill him because he's burnt her is respected, and I like that. Yeah, I find it difficult to respect it, bearing in mind how the moment plays out. But I'm not a witch. I don't get this stuff. We're not three hundred years old and gorgeous and been spurned by a man. I'm definitely not all of those things. No. <laughs> Yeah, one thing that's probably important to also say with the witches is they're not 
obsessed with the normal things. They're not really obsessed with power. They don't trade in money. Mm. Their only form of exchange is said to be mutual aid. Yeah. And that is not immediate. That can maybe be a promise in several hundred years that they will come to their aid. Yeah. And I, I like that. The idea of getting involved, they will not be paid to do that. They will not just join in for the sake of it. No, they do it because it's right or because it feels right to them. And not just in a, it was a good idea at the time kind of right. Like this is a real strong sense of moral right that they must aid in whatever way they can. Yeah, they're certainly good fighters, but they don't hunt for fighting. Yeah. They will do it very sparingly. Um, in terms of some of the other things, they are quite like their human companions. It's almost, it feels weird referring to them as human, mm. so try not to, but they, they do share some similarities. They do have demons, although all of their demons are birds, yep. because, you know, if you want to fly, it'd be a bit annoying if your demon couldn't fly with you. Mm. Yeah, but they could still be bats. I, I feel like the very the sort of restriction to birds is a bit, I don't know. I think it's not purely practical. I think there's other things to do with it as well. There must be. And if you look at the one shaman demon we know about, I don't think it's a coincidence that Sayan Kator is a bird. I, do, I don't think that's a coincidence at all. I, I won't believe that. Definitely not. There's quite a lot of links between the shaman and the witches in these books. In particular, they both share another ability in that, of course, their, their demons can be away from them. Yeah. At greater distances than normal people. Yeah. As we learn from some of the later books, that is not only restricted to witches and shamans mm. but certainly it's true for all of them yeah and in terms of other differences with their demons the very first kind of witch contact we have of course is Kaisa and um lyra's conversation on the ship at trollesund and it's referred to um fairly early on in northern lights that demons don't often talk to humans other than their own but Kaiser does, and it doesn't seem to be weird for him at all. No, you can almost imagine he acts as sort of an ambassador for Seraphina Pekala. Exactly. More often than this one case. Yeah. I mean, well, what's the point of having a demon that can go that far away from you if you're not also going to use him as a mouthpiece? I and mean, it's going to be a bit weird if you have a random snow goose standing next to you that's very clearly a demon, not an animal, and it just refuses to say anything. Like, it, it becomes a bit pointless at that stage, I think. Yeah, definitely true. Just to quickly deviate and talk about the TV series, um, I do. I am kind of glad that they changed him from a snow goose for the TV series. But it's important to know he is really a snow goose. Yes, absolutely. And um, we will talk a bit more about that next episode, I think. But yeah, I, I, I agree. I think there was no way not to make a talking goose look daft. <laughs> yeah, and Kaiser is kind of the symbolism of majesty and wisdom. And the snow goose on TV maybe wasn't the easiest way to do that, but oh well. So the final point, I think, in terms of the witch's interaction with humans or the witch-human relationship, I don't know if it's a specific interaction per se, is the way that the prophecy is the main lens through which humans see witches through so much of the latter half of the series. Mm -hmm, definitely. The Magisterium is obsessed with learning this. Yeah. And yet the central person who it refers to doesn't care in some ways. Yeah, I like it. And... I mean, this prophecy, it's its tricky. We don't ever get given the full content of it, do we? Like, it's not like in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, where you get the whole prophecy read out to you all in one go. You never get that. And you don't even get a summary of the points all in one place. Well, I think what 
implication is that it, it isn't kind of one story written down everywhere, but every witch seems to know the gist of it. Yeah. But it's not like there's one definitive narrative that every witch knows. No. I find that really interesting because if it's that important as a prophecy, you'd think it was relatively immutable. Yeah, because it does seem to cross witch clans. Yeah. It doesn't matter what clan they are from. They all know the rough outline of this story, which is, of course, that Lyra is Eve and she will end destiny or she will cause death to die. They all say slightly different things. Yeah. They'll have their own way of saying it. Mm. Which I, I wonder if part of that is the way of translating it to English. Some of them maybe are more adept at that than others because they certainly must have their own languages. Oh, yeah. No question. I think the quick answer out of that is definitely that it's the inherent problem of any kind of oral tradition because there's there's no reference to witch writing, is there? No, not really. I'm struggling to think. I think at one point in the witch council, is there some form of writing, if I'm right? But I believe if that that is the only time, if any. Yeah. And it's certainly not capitalised on enough for either of us to be entirely sure it happened in the first place. So I think like the prophecy is very much this kind of oral tradition, which then actually makes the magisterium's endless chasing after it even funnier because they're never going to catch it. You can't nail down an oral story, as the 19th century jurists will tell you. Definitely. And the other thing that's often said about the witches is they don't have possessions, really. Yeah. So in the, in the other way, it would be ridiculous for them to write down a prophecy and then keep it somewhere safe. Yeah. That's just, that's not how their lives are lived. Yeah, well, I mean, what they're going to do, P- pin it to like one of their silk ribbons that they're dressed in. That's that's a pretty high risk way of carrying around anything important. Absolutely. So, I mean, you could, we can speculate about how they pass on these traditions and how new witches learn. Yeah hundreds of thousands of years of their history that they must learn. Yeah. I guess you've got a long enough life that you, you've you got a fair shout at being able to learn it all. But even so, it's not obvious how it works, is it? They don't seem to have extra human memories. No. That's never mentioned at any point. No. So moving on from the human and the earthbound, the next kind of obvious thematic point for them is the kind of the magic the mysticism and the folklore which we've definitely touched on a fair bit but there are some there are some interesting points about them um that that we that we find out aren't there yes so as as we've said the witches are one of the people who for an unspecified amount of time but definitely longer than any of the humans in the story are aware of other worlds yeah we can speculate before the point of the Chittagatse world and the Suffolk Knife, and they learned about other worlds. The, the witches heard about them primarily through the Northern Lights, if I'm right. I believe so. Though possibly in other places, we don't know. Yeah. It doesn't seem that they have contact with the other worlds, but they're able to hear them and know that they are otherworldly. Yeah. I think that's really fascinating because actually at that point, Azriel is chasing after something that the witches themselves don't yet have. Like he, he wants contact with this, but to do that, he has to break this world. Whereas the witches have presumably for centuries, maybe millennia, just been content to hear the whispers of the Northern Lights in this place where the, the veil between worlds is thin. Yes, absolutely. They've just been content with their knowledge and realised that it isn't it isn't their role to cross worlds. That's not where their loyalty lies, in a, in a sense. Yeah. 
which then makes their cross-world travel later on even more interesting because, you know, there's, as if we didn't know that the war was huge already. You've got witches chasing after things that they've been perfectly content to just vaguely experience but not actually be involved with. Absolutely. And also, we've not really had any indication that the witches really leave their land. No. They, in the north, they don't even move around their own world very much that we're aware of. Exactly. And then a huge host of them flies into another world. And there's that great moment where they talk about feeling the different air on their skin and the different starlight. Yeah, where they don't know where the gap between worlds was, but they know it happened. I love it. I think it's it's fascinating. I find it really comparable to when, obviously, Yurik Bernison knows he's in the waters of another world yes. at some point. Yes, definitely. But he knows that it's happened. So another moment when they're in this other world is when they meet, or, well, I should say only Ruta Scardi meets the angels, very high-level angels who are on the way to Lord Asriel. Yeah. Um, I believe they are that they're kind of high up servants of the highest rebel angel who we later learn is Zephania. Yeah. Um, and I just I just wanted to read this out because it just fascinates me. So the witches of course believe themselves and generally they are very wise beings. Um they they've lived a long time, they see other people as slightly beneath them in that way. And then you have Ruth Durskardi joining these angels and just briefly I'll read Rutuscadi was 416 years old, with all the pride and knowledge of an adult witch queen. She was wiser by far than any short-lived human, but she had not the slightest idea of how like a child she seemed beside these ancient beings. Um, and then just at the end, it goes, but they expected nothing else. She was very young. <laughs> and I mean, I know, I know the angels are often played as quite condescending. I mean, Baruch and Barthamos descend into oh. the outright catty later on but I, I love this very gentle condescension it's like it's not your fault you're young yeah, they give no indication of of their kind of feelings about her to her they're more than happy for her to accompany them yeah despite the fact that she's almost a little rude when she first meets them she shouts angels halt and listen to me yeah i am the i'm the witch ruta scardi and i want to talk to you you know she's using the imperative tense with angels yeah she just has no idea of what she's dealing with. And they know that and they accept it. I find it funny because actually the way they treat her is the exact way that Philip Pullman refuses to treat children through the whole thing. They're not condescended to. They're not humoured. They're not allowed to get away with nonsense like that. No. Yet here you have a witch and an angel behaving like this together. I just, I find, I find that really, really amazing. I know, it's one of my favourite moments of the subtle knife. I think it's becoming one of mine the more you, the more we talk about it, if I'm honest. <laughs> because this is also Ruth's girl. She's, she's just loving life. She's on her cloud pine. She's flying with these angels. And they're just like, oh, we'll just put up with this for now. I mean, Ruth Scardi in general is easily one of the most badass minor characters in the whole trilogy. Like, for God's sake, Seraphina Pekka has a, a crown made of Little red flowers, and that's lovely. Rutuscardi, tiger teeth. <laughs> no suggestion where these tiger teeth came from. Although, isn't it suggested that she might have killed the, the tigers herself or something? I, I think that's certainly the implication, but no one ever asks. 
She just wears tiger teeth. Interestingly, where do the tigers come from? There aren't tigers that far north, are there? I mean, do they have snow tigers in Scandinavia? I don't think so. I don't believe so. So, I mean, going, going back to this thing where, where witches don't travel that much, actually, there's, there's evidence that they, that they do, you know? I mean, if any witch was going to travel, I would bet it would be Ruta Scardi. Oh, absolutely. Any money you like. And Lord Asriel, I mean, we, we all know Lord Asriel's maybe not the best boyfriend in the world, but... <laughs> If anyone is suited to being with a witch, I think Lord Azriel would be the one. I could see them travelling and having some adventures together. I think so. I, oh, wouldn't that be an amazing spin-off? Oh, <laughs> that's what I would have read. But yes, yeah, so Rita Scuddy, we don't really see her with her clan. She kind of leaves her clan to themselves and goes off on her own adventure to hunt with Lazriel, really. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things about witches that I really love is that there's this real interplay between the individual and the group. You honour individual choices, but your group is going to do something. Ruta Scardi can go off on her own, but the, the Lake Inara witches are all involved in this one thing. And again, it's this sheer level of variety in their characters and their actions within the story. I, I find it brilliant. It, it's always specified that the witch queens must put their clans before themselves so it's in big decisions. So if they're going to war... They can't think of their own aims above the clans. But certainly the witches, all these individuals seem to have their own aims as well, that they accomplish at the same time or they might think differently. Because Serafina, you know, she she jots off and has little trips as well. Yeah. So are we done fangirling over Ruchiscardi here? <laughs> Never, but we can carry on. <laughs> <laughs> we should. So another point in the mysticism of witches that we both found really fascinating is their relationship with death particularly in terms of Yambe Aka, but also in terms of what it says about them, their human interactions and other kinds of views of death that we get in terms of the portrayal of it. Yes, one that really struck me, it's one of my favourite stories from when I was little, the story of the little match girl by Hans Christian Andersen. Just to very briefly summarise the story, as a poor little match girl, and she's sent out in the cold on New Year's Eve to sell single matches and to, to raise money for her family. And she sees this very rich family and it kind of breaks her heart. And at one point she's so cold and no one wants to buy her matches because they're all partying. And she strikes a match and it casts a shadow on this wall and she sees her grandmother who she loved and who died. And obviously the match burns out and so she burns another to see her again and again and again. And eventually she runs really low on matches, but she uses all she has left to strike them all at once to see her grandmother bigger than ever before. And, well, my my, my copy at the minute uh, says, she took the little girl in her arms and both flew in brightness and joy above the earth, very, very high, and up there was neither cold nor hunger nor care. And it's this idea of this woman coming in joy to take you away to death. It's a very different idea of death. Yeah, definitely. And it's just utterly beautiful. And the other thing it reminds me of, although this story was published after the Histoire Material series, is the way death portrayed in The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak. Mm -hmm. In that book, the story is narrated by death, and he's a very human figure. Okay. He's quite cheerful at times. He makes a lot of jokes throughout the book. And he's not seen as this evil, horrible character. He specifically tells characters 
that he doesn't wear a cape, he doesn't carry a scythe. He says, if you want to know what I look like, you should find a mirror, basically. Ooh. Yeah. I'm going to have to read this. I highly recommend that book. It's a wonderful thing. And, yes, yeah, so there's, there's this idea, usually in mythology and folklore, death is portrayed as this evil character who takes you at your prime and drags you away from this world. Um, you can think of, like, in Greek mythology, when... I can't remember which character it is, but tries to evade death. But anyway, this character and death is seen as this person who comes with chains and drags you down to the underworld. Oh, wow. But, you know, you compare that to Little Match Girl and the idea of this loving grandma who just comes and takes her away. And for me, that's more like Yambayaka. Yeah, I think so. But I believe you found something else in more northerly folklore. Yeah, I looked up Yambayaka or Yabameaka, depending where you are coming from. In particular, she is a character from Lapish or sometimes Finnish mythology. She is a goddess in charge of the underworld, known as the Old Woman of the Dead. They have multiple gods and goddesses of death. I can't remember all of them, but certainly one of them is um, Tuoni. And Tuonela is the land of the dead. And Sibelius fans will recognise that from the Swan of Tuonela. So Aka literally means a female spirit in... Sami shamanism and Finnish and Estonian mythology. So back to the shamanism, back to the Finno-Ugric stuff. And interestingly, in the Kalevala, Akka is the wife of the god Ukko, who you might have heard me mention earlier as Ukko or Yumala, who is associated with the cloud pine, which is a very cool little link. And so you have Mader Akka, who is the creator goddess of the laps and who is responsible for the body. So Yabme Akka or Yambe Akka is literally the Akka of the dead, the female spirit of the dead. So in terms of her existence as a death goddess, she's she's definitely there. I couldn't really find a huge amount more on her. I couldn't find a description of her. That's that's the really sad thing. My guess is she's probably old because quite a lot of the death gods in the Kalevala seem to be old. But... If I find any more on that, I will definitely tell you all, but I, I don't currently know. So the point is that the witches who come from the sort of Finno-Ugric and Sami and down into the Baltic and over into the Siberian lands, they are drawing on an existing death goddess, which for me personally then sends me into kind of headcanon territory about what other gods and what other beliefs they carry on with. Every time I just want to know, when, once we hear about them talk about Yambe Aka, oh, please tell me more. I couldn't find anything from Baltic or Finno-Ugric or Siberian mythology about Yambe Aka being cheerful and kindly. I, I couldn't find anything particular about that. I mean, I think personally that might have been simply Philip Pullman wanting to defy stereotypes. They're young and kindly. They don't try and hurt people that we see, really. Yeah. Don't really care about humanity most of the time. Yeah. And in the same way, I guess their goddesses would be a little different as well. Yeah. So there's, there's definitely some really interesting ways that they think about death and very different compared with the humans in the story and how they think about death. Absolutely. And bearing in mind the importance that death has, particularly for Will and Lyra's storyline, but sort of spreading out into the entirety of the 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 universe or the universe is plural looking at the witch's view of death it's a very very marked contrast um although we don't find out what they think happens to them afterwards do we no no definitely not they know that yambe aka comes with visits of joy and she comes smiling and it's peaceful but there's no real 
there's no real knowledge of afterwards because they know that their demons die. Well, not die, but their demons disappear. Yeah. Um, and we, in the little we know, we don't learn about what they think of that. Yeah. I think the implication definitely is that the witches go to the world of the dead, although Lyra doesn't specifically see any that she can identify. Yeah. But I think definitely the implication is because they have demons as they do. Yeah. They were as wrong as everyone else, really, about what they thought about death, maybe. Well, quite, quite. Yeah, so I think there's just one more little thing about the magic, mysticism, folklore stuff. Um, and it's it's more a point of trivia, but they, they do certainly engage in their own kind of mysticism and sort of attempts at looking forward into the future. And we, ha- we have the prophecy on the kind of larger scale. But there was something that you found in John Parry's notes from the end of The Sultan Knife, didn't you? Yes, so about how the witches learn about their world and maybe about the future of their world. It's that the witches read pine marten entrails, purchase scales and crocus pollen. Ooh. Um, more to do with nature, as if they needed any more. Well, but the thing that struck me there is the pine marten, because obviously, as we know, our favourite Lyra, her demon, Pantalimon, eventually settles as a pine marten. In the beginning of the book, Mark Costa says about Lyra that she's got witch oil in her soul. And I just think it's a lovely little nod that he's a pine marten and that they use pine martens in their kind of knowledge mm. search. Kind of little nod there. I wonder if that was deliberate. I mean, I think it has to be. Philip Pullman's not one to just leave randomness. No, true. All right, so the last real theme we wanted to discuss in relation to the witches is their femininity. Yeah. And what it what it kind of implies for femininity throughout the books. Yeah. So there aren't really any long passages on this. Like, there's no kind of polemic on feminism for witches or anything like that, which... Personally, I would be quite happy to read. But we, we kind of have to glean it from what we get throughout, don't we? Mm. I think in a world where you cannot have males of your species, for want of a better word, perhaps feminism and your femininity isn't as conscious a thought for you. Yeah, for sure. But so we have to acknowledge that generally in Will's world and which is our world and we can only imagine in other worlds, witches do not get the best rap and they have been subject to quite a lot of torture and killing over the centuries, whether or not they were real witches. Yeah. I looked up in the Dictionary of Phrase and Fable just quickly and I found out that the last person killed in England for witchcraft was called Alice Molland in 1684. Blimey, that's late. It, well, it's 1727 in Scotland. Wow. So it was even worse. And these women generally were older women. They were single women. Often they're women associated with childbirth, which men were not generally allowed to be at. And so the older wise woman was seen as the power figure then. And when oftentimes childbirth didn't go well, that's where the blame settled. Ah, okay. So you get this real angle... And it's it's not new to anybody who's looked at the history of witchcraft. There's this real angle of women who know more than they should become targets. Like as soon as you put your head above the parapet, and for goodness sake, we know that's true now, don't we? You put your head above the parapet, you are at risk. And I I absolutely love, I cannot overstate how much I love that Philip Pullman's witches are not are not treated this way as a matter of course in their world. I 
cannot overstate how much I love that. I mean, even the Magisterium, who is so keen to be involved in the lives of everyone, they they turn a blind eye, really, to the yeah. witches. They know that we don't follow their god, yeah. but they are still happy to work with them. Yeah, and bearing in mind the church was at the forefront of so much witch persecution is still at the forefront of quite a lot of misogyny today. Bearing in mind we know that, I, I think that the alteration in terms of the magisterium and how they think about these things, I think that is really, really interesting. Definitely fascinating, but of all the things, I mean, Father Gomez takes far more objection to the Malefa than he ever does to witches. Yeah, these creatures who he met five minutes ago. And he's obsessed with their wheels are satanic, as we were reading. Absolutely. And yet the witches, no, he doesn't care in the slightest. Yeah. And he wasn't going to stay quiet about it if he didn't like it, was he? No, no. In his in his private thoughts, he is very vivid. <laughs> <laughs> so there's another point as well. We were talking about witches and how they were often single women in our, in our world. And in Lyra's world, their motherhood, their, their parenthood is very kind of explicitly spoken about, isn't it? Yeah. It's complex and clear at the same time. Yeah. Um, Girls become witches and the boys do not. What happens in the specifics within that is never made clear. No. It's said that well, all witches are sad when their sons die, but how much do they have in the raising of them isn't clear at all. Yeah. And then they're daughter witches. That, that, that must be a kind of complicated relationship if you live with your mother for hundreds of years, possibly in the same clan. I don't know about you, but I, as much as I love my mother, <laughs> that would be a lot for me. <laughs> yeah, I love her very dearly, but I could not handle hundreds of years with my mother. We apologise to both our mothers at this point. We do love you very much. <laughs> it must be an interesting dynamic, both of you looking as young, beautiful women for your whole lives. Yeah, it's really, it's strange. I think the way they're presented, they are not presented sort of permanently as mothers or potential mothers like motherhood is so sort of important like dare I say fetishized in so much of society that to have these fighting women who have these definitely very important very complex family relationships but for that not to be the sort of the start and finish of their characterization I really really enjoy that yeah, and I mean, even the witch we get to know best, Seraphina Pekova, her motherhood is only referenced in passing. Yeah. We know she's had one son who died. Whether she has any more or any daughters is never even mentioned. Yeah, for sure. It's just not of interest to any of the other characters, and she certainly doesn't talk about it herself. Yeah. And neither any of her other romantic relationships, if there have been any. Yeah. And I, d I don't know how often a witch might expect to take up with a man at all. I mean, I feel like Ruta Scardi might have been more open to it than some others, but that's conjecture. That's basically based on how she talks about Lord Asriel. I don't have anything else for that. Just don't often talk about their romantic relationships among themselves. I think the only real example is Ruta Scardi when she's just come back from what we can only imagine is quite a bit of fun. Mm -hmm. The other time is Utica Minen, really. Yeah. And she is not willing to speak about it. Another witch has made her. Yeah. That's really the only time we hear witches talk about their sort of personal lives and their their relationships. And you see with Utica Minen, she's very young for a witch. And of course she must be because John Parry has not been in their world for very long at all. 
No. So it's it's recent and it hurts. And I I like this suggestion that there are whole worlds of pain that they don't talk about on the regular. I mean, they definitely pass the Bechdel test. Oh, God, they do. Which is wonderful. And to be fair, quite a lot of the other female characters are a little less obsessed with their men, but none more so than the witches. But they aren't sexless. They do have passionate lives. I guess it's a good thing about having a life that runs for centuries is that there is so much in that life that you actually can't devote all of your time and energy to any one single thing. It just doesn't work, does it? No. Especially when the men can't be a full part of your life. They are just a blip, really. Yeah. We really like the witches and how they're portrayed. We really, really do. I think this this whole, like, strong women, a lighter nature and mysticism, but without the patriarchal nonsense that surrounds so much witchy discussion, I think it's a real triumph of world building, of people building, and of characterization on the individual level and the corporate as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if only we got more of them, really, that's what I want. A whole witch spin-off would be just awesome. Oh, yes. Because, I mean, Seraphina Pekula will live for many, many more years. Yes, she will. And, I mean, Ruta Scardi's still alive at the end, isn't she? Uh, yes. So, I think she's mentioned in the last battle. I think she must be. Yeah. She helps uh, towards the end with them finding their demons, because obviously they can fly. Yes. Oh, yes, of course. Sure. I know the Galavestmans are also helping, but yeah. Oh, learning more about the witches would be the dream. A book in the Book of Dust lets us know more. Oh, don't even. <laughs> so I think that pretty much wraps up our discussion of the witches, why they're brilliant, where they came from, and what they tell us about the story. But as always, with all the episodes we're going to record, this is only what we can come up with. And we are just too randoms basically this is what interested us and what we thought yes absolutely and in that vein we would absolutely love your feedback your questions your corrections your thoughts we don't want this just to be you know an hour-long lecture at everybody about what we think the witches are we want this to be a conversation enriching the his dark materials community so please please add what you can add what you want to disagree with us we want to hear it all and you can do that via email at theretiringroom at gmail.com or through any of our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at The Retiring Room. And as I said at the beginning, links to all the books that we use, links to find out anything extra that we didn't really have time for in this episode will be in the show notes if your podcast player can do that or on our website, retiringroompodcast.wordpress.com. Our next episode. If you've enjoyed this, you'll be pleased to hear that we're going to be spending more time with witchcrafts and particularly our favourite witch, Serafina Pekula. We've got some really, really good material on her, including diving more into folklore, some more real world geography, and some funny trivia about some naming. So come back in two weeks to listen to that. Absolutely. We will see you then.